This episode of The Elf has been sponsored by our friends at Initial View and their new elevator pitch. You can learn more at initialview.com slash elevator pitch. I'll be back a little later in this episode with Amy Jarek to talk more about their new product. But for now, on with the show. Welcome to The Alp, the admissions leadership podcast, a series of one-on-one conversations with people who have been climbing the leadership mountain in college admissions. Some are nearing the summit, some are already there. But how did they get there? And what can other climbers learn from their mindsets, habits, and experiences? I'm your host, Ken Anselman, and with me today is John Bockenstead. And I studied up hard on uh, Davin's podcast to make sure I pronounced it correctly, John. Yeah, well, there are factions within our family that pronounce it differently. If you know anything about German, there used to be an umlaut in there. And uh, so some fa- uh, family members say Birkenstedt, some say Beckenstead, and some say Bakenstedt. So really, okay, anything works for me. Birkenstedt. Yeah. Yeah. Give it a go. Oh, something like that. Okay. Anyway, so thanks, John, for being here tonight. Uh, John is the uh, Vice Provost for Enrollment Management at Oregon State University. Uh, You may know him from his Twitter game and his writings on higher ed data stories, um, but also the, I guess, is this a new website, johnbockenstead.com? It's johnbockenstead.net, and it's not new. It's just that I registered that domain and directed my WordPress site toward it. Yeah. And then I, I have a third a, th- a third blog, too, which is called outhereinoregon.net. And it's mostly designed for counselors out on the West Coast, specifically within oh. the state of Oregon. Well, and that might be a good place to start. And I, I know when we ran into each other uh, down in Louisville, we were looking at a uh, at the giant board on the uh, uh, down in the vendor space. And, and I had asked if you'd be on the show and you said very graciously, yes. And that I really wanted to talk a little bit about this move that you made, um, you know, you had been at DePaul for 17 years. It was, uh, just about 17 years. Yeah. Just about 17 years and headed off from a, uh, the largest private institution in the country, right? Is that correct? Uh, biggest private in the Midwest. And at okay. one time it was among the top 10 privates, but I don't think it is anymore. And you have not only shifted uh, time zones uh, and geography, but you've also shifted institutional type. And so I guess that might be an interesting place to start, which is what sort of questions you had to answer uh, to the degree that you're comfortable. But as you were thinking about moving a place you knew really well and was associated with you and vice versa to a new place. Yeah. uh, So... I, I, there were there were probably six or seven things that came together all at once when I was thinking about this. Um, the first thing that struck me the first time I saw the job was that it was it looked like it was almost written for me. The, the things that hmm. were in the portfolio were things that I felt reasonably comfortable with, and there were things that were explicitly outside the portfolio that even lined up with what I was doing at DePaul. So, for instance, at the time international admissions was not a part of the job function. It is now, but that's the same way it was at DePaul for me, that international admissions was in a separate office. And so uh, there was that. There was the fact that my youngest daughter had just graduated from university. Um, The fact that uh, my boss, David Kalsbeek, who is sort of the 
the quintessential dean of um, the enrollment management profession had decided to take an early retirement. Um, new president, new provost, um, the fact that my wife and I loved Oregon. And, and then finally, it was um, 90 minutes commuting each way every day for 17 years, was really, you know, I'd gotten used to it, but there were better ways for me to spend that time every day. And um, all things sort of combined together in a very short period of time to make it a good move for me. That's a, and so that's, were there any moments where, you know, and I'm turning on my own personal way back machine to when I had left a place that I knew for a very long time, um, which you have given me a hard time about from time to yeah. time in the past. Uh, it rhymes with Larquette um, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, I'm sure astute listeners can figure out where that is. Um, but you know, it, it can be a, a bit of a wrenching experience going from the familiar to the unfamiliar. So what sort of things did you have to do to prepare yourself for that kind of a move? Yeah. Um, well, there, there were a couple things. Um, number one, you know, it's very different working for a public university. And I sort of knew that coming in to um, Oregon State. But it's interesting that I have to um, punch an access code to dial a long distance call and I have to get someone to approve my airfare before I buy it. <laughs> and, um, you know, the budgeting system is completely different than what I'm used to. And so that's all, um, you know, minor sort of things. And there's also the issue of having your salary published for everybody in the state or nation or world to look up if they want to. But, but in, you know, as I, I've been here for a while, it's really kind of interesting that you can look up anyone's salary at the university and everybody knows what everybody's making. And that, you know, that issue sort of goes away. Um, it's, it's kind of refreshing actually to know what everybody makes or to be able to know what everyone makes. Um, so there was that. Um, and, uh, you know, it took a little adjusting too, but by and large, um, I would tell anybody who's been in the same job for a while to really seriously think about whether you, want to stay there the rest of your life or not. And that's where I was at DePaul. Um, yeah, I, you know, I just turned 61. So as I was sitting at DePaul for 17 years, you know, pretty much every day was pretty predictable. I knew the people I was going to meet with. I knew what the issues were. I knew where we were in the cycle. I knew what was going to come up. And um, the, the idea of having in something new every day where you really don't know what's going to happen when you walk in the office is, is kind of invigorating and, and kind of energizing. So I would highly recommend it to anybody who's been sitting on the fence and thinking about, um, you know, what they might do or um, whether they should make a move to at least give it strong consideration. Hmm. That's uh, good advice. Um, were there, I, I, I remember when I made my move from, okay, I'll give it away. It was Marquette um, in case people hadn't figured that out. But um, up to Lawrence, th there were some moments fairly early on where I questioned whether that was, um, that was the right move. Not because of anything that Lawrence was presenting, but this, uh, maybe it was reaching back to the comfort of what I knew. I, I was a lot younger then. It was my first leadership role. Um, you yourself have moved through a bunch of institutions throughout your career. Is that something that gets easier with time? You have kind of equipment to deal with when you make those sorts of transitions. Um, I don't. I don't know if it gets any easier. Um, I think 
when I made the move from St. Bonaventure to DePaul in 2002, I think there was a lot more pressure because I was coming from a small place and a relatively small job into a big place and a much bigger job. And there were people there that um, expressed to me that they didn't think someone from that background could handle the complexity of a place like DePaul, which, which mm. kind of intimidated me a little bit. But I was also, how old would I have been? 42, I guess, 43, something like that. And, um, you know, you take out a big mortgage and you move your kids. And our son was in second grade, I guess. And our daughter was in kindergarten. And if that job doesn't go well for you, that's a problem. Um, <laughs> right now, if something doesn't go well, I say, oh, well, that's that's too bad. But I can get a consulting job next week. And I'll be free and able to do whatever I want. And there's really no pressure in that regard. Um, but there's always the pressure of wanting to do well and do better for yourself, and especially to do better for the university you've chosen to work at. And it's been it's been terrific so far. I, I really couldn't be happier here, and it, it was the best move I've made. And you are, as folks are aware, um, preparing to have a conversation, or actually probably deep in the midst of the conversation uh, at Oregon State that you led DePaul through uh, before 2012, um, you know, about whether or not to go test option. Right. Um, and so actually, where are you in that process? And and just so people know, um, we are, we're having this conversation uh, the evening that uh, John's home state is kicking off officially the uh, convention season with uh, the caucuses in Iowa. Right. Um, yes, we are. And it'll be an interesting evening. Uh, I know some people there and I've told them who to vote for, but I don't know if they'll follow me or not. Um, pro- <laughs> probably not since they know me. Um, uh, what was the question? I, oh, where are we in test optional? Um, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're, you're engaged in the conversation at Oregon State. I'm interested in hearing how that conversation may be similar or different from what the conversation was like at DePaul, yeah. at least at this phase of the conversation. Well, at DePaul, it was actually much easier than I thought it would be. Um, hmm. We um, we had done the research for maybe four years, three or four years, I guess, um, experimented with some non-cognitive variable assessment stuff to see if we could find anything that would predict any better than the SAT or ACT, um, found out that we really didn't have anything perfect. So just decided to make the leap. We took it to the um, uh, academic policies committee at of the faculty senate, had an interesting discussion and it passed 10 to nothing unanimously. And then we went to the full faculty senate and we were first on the agenda. And the second thing on the agenda was um, the faculty senate having a beef with the provost about a tenure decision. So the last thing they wanted to do was argue or discuss or waste valuable time when they could be ripping someone's bones apart, um, talking about test optional. And since we had suggested it as a pilot project, they said, fine, go ahead and do it. And it was over in three three minutes. Um, You're kidding. No, it was, it was really very, you wouldn't kid about that. No, no, it was really very easy. It got harder later when a few faculty members reacted to a newspaper or a blogger article in the Chicago Sun-Times. And that got a little more difficult. And I had to go on about a six month public relations campaign to all sorts of groups around campus and around the state 
to make the case for test optional, even after we had implemented it. Um, and so <laughs> it was pretty easy to get it passed and um, it was a little harder in retrospect here. Um, you know, I think, I think the surprise of a institution going test optional is no longer novel like it was back right. in the day. And I think um, one of the things I love about Oregon state is it's very mission centric. And, um, you know, I was sort of attracted to that. Um, as a land grant institution, we believe that we're here to serve the people and and to be, a, you know, an important part of the educational cycle within the state. And that's um, that makes it kind of easy, you know, especially when you take a look at the data and the research, and most importantly, the um, the people that standardized tests tend to exclude from getting a, a higher education. Um, they're precisely the kind of people we think we want to serve and hope to serve and try to serve all the time. So um, there's been very little resistance, quite the contrary. Um, I, I gave the provost here the book SAT Wars and he read it in a weekend and came back and said, we should get rid of test. Um, <laughs> Okay. Then I told him about the test and the art of thinking documentary. He downloaded it and watched it on a plane and was actually kind of suggesting that I wasn't moving fast enough on doing oh it. He kept, ask, he kept asking me where we were on it. Um, the <laughs> and deans, you had been there how long? Yeah, not long, about three or yeah. four months. The deans universally said they were in favor of it at a dean's meeting. Um We've been to um, the board of trustees and they didn't vote, but nobody expressed any, um, any objections. Um, I've spoken to the inner institutional faculty senates of the public universities in Oregon. And um, by the end of the meeting, some, I, first of all, I paid $20. I, I had a game in which someone could win $20. And so they were very engaged with the presentation. <laughs> And, and um, was this a, a side prop that you were uh, you were working? It, on? It, it was um, showing them what happens to your ability to respond accurately under the timing or the pressure of timing on a standardized test. And so oh, um, nice. they, they thought it was really interesting and intriguing. Um, <laughs> so I went with them. And by the time we finished our conversation, a few of them said, why don't we throw out test altogether and go test blind? And I was, I was kind of caught flat footed by that. I didn't expect that at all. Um, so, uh, you know, we've had some follow-up conversations and I think, uh, when we go to the faculty Senate here at Oregon state in mid February, we will, um, we will likely get it passed based on everything I've seen. You know, we set up a web forum and asked for responses and there were, I think 140 responses and 132 were positive and eight were negative. So there seems to be a lot of support here for that. That's uh, so, and you're looking to this, uh, looking for this for the uh, 2021 academic cycle, right? Yeah. And we're hoping uh, um, three of the public universities are already test optional or will be by then either fully or at least partially. Um, the two other big ones, one has said, we're kind of right behind you. And one has said, we'll think about it. Mm -hmm. They're going to talk apparently to their faculty Senate in April. So we're going to wait and see. And if everybody decides uh, to do it, 
we will make one big statewide announcement on the same day. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. I probably shouldn't say that. I probably shouldn't well, say that because it. You want me to scrub look, that out? No, 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 no. <laughs> the reason, the reason I shouldn't say it is because you look at what happened in California today with the announcement right. from the faculty Senate. And I haven't read all 228 pages or whatever it is, but it's my personal opinion. I'll say that to keep the lawyers off my back that uh, the, there are the college board fingerprints all over that document. And um, so, you it's know, turn back the clock time, right? Yeah. I don't want them. Yeah. It's 2002 all over again. Yeah, I don't want them yeah. sticking their nose in our business. Um, they will mm -hmm. probably, but um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's kind of ridiculous. Uh, some of the stuff that was in that document. Um, and I haven't even read the whole thing yet. I've looked at excerpts of it and um, strikes me as, as um, they, they contributed a little bit to it. Mm. Sort of like uh, lobbyists writing legislation, that sort of thing. Well, I don't know if you've seen the test in the art of thinking, but Richard Atkinson, who was a president of the UC system, um, you know, they decided in 2002 to get rid of the SAT. And he said in that movie that college board paid people to write advertisements or write uh, op-eds and to publicly, you know, put pressure on legislators and other sorts of things like that in order to keep the, their test. And so there's one, there's a couple lines in that document that I've seen where they talk about creating a new test. And I said, oh, you know, this is exactly what happened in 2002. And we got, we got the crappy, the, got the writing essay, we got the crappy SAT in 2005. Yeah. 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 So I, I, I think I've seen you write somewhere about, you know, imagining, I forget how many years in the future where we look at um, standardized tests like we used to look at x-rays uh, when people were buying shoes. Yeah. Um, your, listeners, be just your listeners don't know what that means. So, <laughs> so uh, I do. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I don't know how long it lasted, but there was a time in this country where when a, a child got new shoes fitted, they stuck their feet in a machine and an x-ray machine took an x-ray picture, a live x-ray of their feet. And the salesman and the, the parents looked at it to see whether or not it was, um, you know, the shoes were fitting properly. And um, of course now we're horrified by the radiation that it would inflict, not just on the child's foot, but you know, within the store and to the salespeople who were working it and it, we're horrified by it. And, you know, it was well-intentioned, but clearly not a good instrument. And, and we have the SAT now. And I think in 15 years, people will say, how could we have been, how could we have subjected our children to that? How could we have been yeah. so naive as to make it important admissions decisions about it? And most important, how could we have turned loose admissions officers that know almost nothing about measurement and assessment and standard error of measure and normal distributions and percentiles to make judgments about what a good test score is? Right, right. I just, maybe they knew I was going to be talking to you, but one of our local TV affiliates, um, Wisconsin policy document came out today, some uh, about test optional. I hadn't even had time to read it. I just know I had to talk to a, a TV person who wanted to know how on earth a, a college can make an admission decision <laughs> decision without a test score. Right. Um, it was a really, really hard conversation. Um, I can, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I just, I just wrote a blog post that said, I'm not going to educate um, 
reporters anymore. They can read this blog yeah. post and read all the points about all the all the shop worn cliches that the College Board and ACT trot out every time uh, someone opposes testing. And here are the responses, and here's why it doesn't make any sense. And so, um, you know, they can they can do what they want. Um, I also also offered an opportunity for them to get me to stop talking about tests once and for all, and no one's taken me up on it yet. No one's taken you up on it yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, um, and until that uh, dream comes true, where test scores go the way of shoe store X-ray machines, people will probably continue to not get it. Yeah. Um, Speaking of writing, here's a bit of a segue. And, and I know, I, I, I think I talked to you in a parking lot at a um, hotel in Itasca about this once. Um, it, I, Illinois ACAC folks will recognize that, of course, as the location of the conference hotel. But um, I, I had asked you the question then, but I'd like to ask it again here, which is you are, or at least you strike me as a prolific reader, researcher, uh, and writer, to be sure, and the evidence certainly supports that. How, where do you make the time to do that? And I ask that uh, I ask that more for folks who are looking to do similar sorts of things themselves. How do you how do you carve out the time, and where do you find it? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, with the reading part, um, people are really shocked when I tell them I haven't read a book in thirty five years. Um, I have. I have an. Let me register the shock here on this end. Yeah, I, ha- okay. I have a notoriously short attention span, and so the ability of any book to hold my interest for more than a chapter or two just isn't there. I mean, I've picked up books and sort of read a chapter here, or you know, looked at a few paragraphs there, but um, um, I I just don't read books. I don't. But on the other hand, I read a lot. Um, yeah. I yeah. I remember. When I was about six years old, a, a little old lady in the dentist office laughing at me because I was sitting there reading Better Homes and Gardens, and I just because because it was there because it was there, and I I just like to yeah. pick up things and read and learn about stuff. Um, I did the strengths what was it Strengths Finder is that, and my yeah. number one thing was yep. learner. You know, I'm always interested in new people, new ideas, new concepts. And so I'll read that. I'll read magazine articles. I'll read newspaper articles. I'll read essays, but I just don't read a lot of books. So, hmm. so um, my my bank of information is is tremendously wide, but very shallow. And I have a a mind for remembering really stupid stuff. Um, you know, little oh, that's self deprecating. I mean, there's no <laughs> like so in nineteen I don't know seventy eight I guess. I remember um, seeing a Barney Miller episode, if you remember Barney Miller. And um, I do. on I do. the, the in and out board of the detectives, they spelled Wojohowitz. And I looked at it and I just knew right instantly I would never forget how they spelled Wojohowitz on that board. And I don't know why I still remember that. I have no idea why, but I do. And I, I so I have a, a memory like an elephant for stuff like that. And then I'll, you know, go to the grocery store and I can't remember the three things I was going to buy. So I don't know. I don't know how my brain works, but I think it's probably different than everybody else's. Uh, um, I would not be doing my job as the host if I didn't ask you to spell Wojohowicz. Uh W-O-J-W-O-J-C-I-E-H-O-W-I-C-Z. 
At least that's how it was written on the board that day. I can guarantee I can probably find that episode somewhere. Okay. Hey, I'm here with Amy Jarek, who uh, many of you know used to be the head of Berkeley's undergraduate admission operation, but now she's in a new role. She's the dean in residence at Initial View. Um, Amy, thanks for joining me for this uh, segment. How did you get involved with Initial View in the first place? Yeah, as our first dean in residence, I'm doing a lot of things. Uh, one of the things that's closest to my heart, though, is the Initial View elevator pitch. Um, it's a newer product, and it is something that, um, specifically for me, uh, I like because it's helping to reach out to CBOs. It's helping to reach out to students who are served by CBOs. It's filling a bit of a, a void that I think uh, we've seen in terms of those connections that uh, happen uh, on a local level, but perhaps not so much on a national level. Yeah, so this is, uh, it sounds like a, a way to uh, increase access for students. I, I know many of our listeners will be familiar with the work that you do helping us recruit and evaluate international students, but uh, give us a little bit more on elevator pitch. Yeah, so the elevator pitch is different. Uh, it is certainly something that, first of all, is completely in the student's control. Uh, there is no interviewer. All the student needs is the opportunity to sit in front of a piece of technology um, on which they can record. So a phone, a tablet, uh, a computer, and it gives them a chance to speak into that device, record themselves, they get to review it, they get to watch it, they get to hear themselves, they get to see exactly what the admissions office would see. And if they're not happy with it, they can actually do it again. What I appreciate, though, is that as many times as they want to do it, the one they submit as a final is not edited. It is authentic and true, um, and it has been filmed by them and approved by them before they sent um, sent it to the admissions offices. And it's how long? It's 90 seconds, 90 seconds, because you, you know, of, of all the people, I feel like I have a great respect for um, the amount of work and the lack of time that is, uh, is on admissions officers when it comes to getting through all the applications in a thoughtful and thorough way. So 90 seconds, I think, is the amount of time that is um, just enough for the student, not too long for the admissions officer, um, and also allows the student to deliver what they needed to in a um, non-stressful way. I think also understanding that uh, this is integrated into Slate and other CRMs, so it shouldn't be a lot of work on the back end for technical, and it should show up pretty easily as the reader's reading. Um, I think it's really important, too, to know that, you know, one of the things I struggled with when I was in admissions is I never felt like I had enough time to fully understand the CBOs um, that were outside of our immediate area. And I, I think that this uh, provides an important tool, and that tool is helping to make a profile, much like a school profile, but this is for a CBO. And the template is designed by initial view, but the content comes from the CBO. So there's an opportunity to see the work that they do, the mission they have, the students they serve, all on one concise template that I think for for me when I was in admissions would have been incredibly helpful to fill in some of the missing pieces around the context and the and, and the content of the program. Hmm. 
Cool. Um, so how does this work? Does it cost anything for students? How, you know, I want to find out what it means for them yeah. on their end. So the students are actually uh, required to pay a $22 fee. Um, while for some students that doesn't feel like much, for others, $22 is, is too much. And so what I really appreciate is that Initial View has taken that very seriously, has a very generous waiver policy in place. I think it's really important to understand too, that for students who are working with CBO partners, um, they won't pay anything, and hopefully they'll also get some special guidance about how this works. Um, I'm really, really um, proud of the way that Initial View has, has responded to the concern around the fee for this, this product, and I think it's been important to also highlight that not only is it something that a student could do for free, but also it's reinvesting in the CBO community. So for CBO partners, um, Initial View has committed to putting 50% of the revenue back into those CBO partners. So making sure that not only is the student getting a waiver to do this product for free, but also the CBO will have funding that they can invest into the next generation of applicants as well. I think it's really it's really telling to un to understand the dynamics. Um, you know, not all CBOs are are um, hoping to you know, make it through the next year with a, with limited funding, but most of them are looking into that space where they want to keep doing the work. They want partners who um, they trust with great integrity and being able to put 50% of the revenue back in makes initial view one of those that I think will, will help with sustainability as well. It's a really compelling model. I, I, I love this. So if, if folks want to learn more about this, um, where can they go? The Initial View website um, will have an elevator pitch um, very well advertised. I think it'll be important. Um, Initial View is obviously a company that as products evolve, they want to be able to help students and users understand um, how to be successful. Obviously, Initial View is never going to tell a student what to say or how to say it. But in addition to trying to figure out if as a CBO you'd like to be a partner, as a student you can go there and get good tips about um, the types of messages that have been successful um, for other students who have done this process already. Cool. Amy, this is great. Thanks for sharing all of this, and I know we'll be back in touch again soon. All right. Thanks, Ken. So that, that covers the reading part. Yeah. Um, but there's also, uh, you know, you're famous for your visualizations and um, the research that's that's behind those. I, I guess before we get to the writing, I, I am interested in finding out, do, do you go to the research with a story in mind? Does the story come out of playing with the data? Or maybe, I don't mean to box you into a corner, but... Yeah. When you approach a problem or the, the blogs that you have written using the, the, the data, where do you start? Um, I usually sort of, you know, it, I don't know if you've ever seen the cartoon Phineas and Ferb, you know, mm -hmm. where one of them doesn't talk and the other one says, I know what I'm going to do today. And once in a while, something will come to me and I'll say, oh, you know, I need to look at the relationship between endowment and Pell Grants or, um, you know, some interesting stuff or, or there's, or so a relationship occurs to me and I investigate it. Or sometimes it's just, um, 
taking the information and the data and putting it into a form that people can digest. And a great example of that is the, the um, visualization I did on my higher ed data stories blog about um, discrepant scores from the SAT and ACT or SAT. They, um, they put it into a PDF and you really can't see the effect of it because it's all in tables. So I literally had to take all the data and type it into a spreadsheet and double check it and make sure it was correct and then visualized it. And when you visualize it, um, things just jump out at you. You yeah. say, you say, how is that even possible? How can, how can a test like that exist? But you know, when it's in a table of data, you can't see those patterns. You can't understand that sort of stuff. So sometimes it will be, it will be that, you know, just taking data that exists and making it a picture instead of a table. Um, sometimes it's downloading a huge data set and sort of playing with it just to see what sort of jumps out at me. Um, hmm. It really depends on, I, someone asked me how an English major can do this. And I said, well, I think actually the, I'm not saying I'm in this category because people do amazing things with data visualization tools that I couldn't even begin to do. But I said the best data visualization people are usually humanities majors um, yeah. because they understand the, how to construct the narrative. You know, there are all sorts of really highly technical people that can't tell a story. And th this is not about technology anymore. It's about using technology to tell the story or to uncover the patterns or to make it um, make something visible that otherwise wasn't visible. And um, the example I, I always use is elevator operators. In the in the fifties, um, you know, every elevator had someone who operated it because elevators were complicated and dangerous, and you needed to do everything manually. And um, so you had to have an elevator operator. Now it's you walk in the elevator, you push the button. So that was that's like stage two. And it's really a self-service elevator, just like data visualization tools are self-service. You don't need uh, someone sitting in a basement without windows um, creating reports for you. And and now we're, we're even to the point where if you go to the Marriott in uh, uh, Times Square in New York City, you, um, you tell the elevator what floor you want to go to. And it routes you onto the correct elevator to make the most efficient delivery of all the people in the lobby. And um, so we're getting to that point where data visualization tools are now looking at your data and telling the story for you. I think it's fascinating. Yeah. Are, are there are there places where, or do you remember a time when you were um, so surprised by what you you went in looking for something and found something completely different and had one of those gobsmacked moments and had to go and write about it or it changed the way you you thought about something? So have I been gobsmacked by by something I found? By a discovery in a, in one of your data stories. You went in looking for one thing, maybe came out with with something else. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um there's one I've done there about um educational attainment since 1940. <laughs> and um the first time I pulled the data into a visualization, I thought that I thought I had like transposed some columns or done something wrong. And the reason was in 1940, about 3% of adults had a college degree in the US. And by, you know, 2016, or whatever the last year in the data was, um, it was up to about 33%. Hmm. 
And what's more interesting is in 1940, this, the plurality, the single biggest group of people, adults in the U.S., had an education level of sixth grade or less. Mm. And I, I couldn't believe that. But, it, but then it made sense to me. My parents were born in 1916 and 1917, and um, they didn't go to high school. You know, they they finished their formal education at eighth grade. And so they were in they were like well educated for nineteen forty. At the time. Yeah. Yeah. And and that shocked me. I you know, I couldn't believe that and how far we had come. And um suddenly all these pieces fall together. You know, you've got you've got the war, you've got the GI Bill, you've got um extraordinary explosion of educational attainment in this country at the same time that you have an unprecedented growth in the economy. And then the question becomes, which one caused the other? Which came first. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, they're probably interrelated in some sense, but um, it was, it's just, I'm still blown away by it. And in fact, I did a reboot of it with more recent data uh, just a little while ago because it's still, it's still a fascinating thing for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you just shift around in your, uh, your, your sweet pillow set up there? I did because my, yeah. knee, my arthritic knee is very stiff right now. Yes. Oh, well, um, yeah. L- listeners will know that we, we were both describing our, our, our studios that we're recording in and apparently we're both surrounded with pillows right now. So that's, uh, yeah. that's, that's either a wonderful image or something that people will want to forget immediately. Yeah. I'm in that uh, latter category already. <laughs> Right. So as for the writing, I know some people struggle with getting something started, getting something finished. The volume that you have provided all of us, I mean, and it's when I think about what you're, I mean, it's almost like this, uh, this podcast should be sponsored by you um, or us sponsoring you just because of what you have given the rest of us to think about different ways of thinking about problems and the way of approaching our work. And, you know, you've got some grad school level stuff in there, but with all of that aside, <laughs> back to the the production, you've written a lot and, and you've got a lot of readers and a lot of people who, who look to you for, for what you're writing. And so could you talk about the process? Yeah. Um, it's interesting because what you see on, on my blog about 95% of that is just stream of consciousness first draft. I mean, I will go back and I have a problem with antecedents. I refer to it, you know, when there's no it in the previous two sentences to think about. Sure. So I do stuff like that a lot, but um, really typically, you know, something will occur to me in the shower in the morning or as I'm driving to work Mm -hmm. or something. And then I write it in my head. Um, I just sort of organize the thoughts into blocks and by the time I sit down at the computer, um, it's really just a matter of dictating it to the to the keyboard and punching it out and and um, writing it. So it's not a long, laborious process for me. It's not hard. Um, it's just something that I do really naturally. And um, um, I don't. I know other people struggle and find it difficult. But if anyone ever watched me do a blog post, it would be sit down, type. You know, a thousand words, go back and edit for 10 minutes and then publish. Dunsies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and it shows. I mean, I go back and read some of the stuff I wrote a year ago and say, oh, God, that's really not very clear. Or it's not as cogent or, you know, or it's whack or crazy or something. It just doesn't make as much sense as I thought it did at the time. But 
you know, money back refund if you're not happy, right? Yeah, yeah, but at the same time, you know, I've, I've I've often been told, and I have turned around and told others that the pursuit of the perfect is the enemy of the good, and sometimes just getting yeah. it out there is more important than getting it out there with all the antecedents perfectly yeah. tight. Yep. Um, Get her done. So, from one reader, um, on behalf of a whole bunch of folks I know that read you, I would just say thank you for doing this. It's um, you don't have to do it, um, or maybe you do, um, but we're beneficiaries of it. And so, I I know f- I for one appreciate it. Well, it, it's a character flaw that if um, if I find somebody who I disagree with, I don't have to disagree with them publicly. But when I find somebody that I think is wrong. Or no, when I find somebody who I think is, um, how do I say this, stupid, and they're proud of their, <laughs> and and they're proud of their stupidity, there's just something about that that causes me or compels me to respond to it. So, um, you know, I I should learn. I'm I'm too old to be doing this sort of stuff, and I should just let it go. But there's something inside me that just won't let. Um, uh, vain stupidity pass without a comment. Well, it's it's interesting. You'll you'll sometimes see somebody make a comment of a certain level of stupidity or offensiveness, and then Twitter will call for you or Akil or somebody else to go go and take care of it for us. Yeah, um, I, know. I suspect the uh, maybe more people feeling courageous enough to jump into that breach themselves. Yeah, well, maybe. And I credit it all to um, three things. Um, first of all, in um, probably grade school, I uh, a copy of Mad Snappy Answers to Stupid Questions fell into my hand somehow. And I ended up reading volume one, two, and three of that. And I think that was probably the, the biggest influence ever on my life. Um, but also two, uh, two, well, one literature work. The Stranger by Camus and Monty mm. Python um, gave me uh, a sense of comfort with my um, wonderment about the absurdity of life and the absurdity of everything. And it really made me feel good that that there were other people that saw the world as kind of absurd and silly and um, actually didn't get too stressed about it, but kind of reveled in it. And so that those were the things that influenced my life. And and sort of the way I view the world and, um, you know, all the other things growing up that that contribute in little or major ways to your upbringing. Mm. I will, uh, I'll, I'll put links to that in the show notes if folks want to learn how to snap back or clap back like uh, yeah. John Bon Jovi said. It, it's, a, it's a great, it's a great, I think there were three volumes of it. And um, I still remember some of the little vignettes in it. It, it was just great. So, yeah. Well, and didn't they just finally put Mad to bed? They did, recently? and it uh, yeah, yeah. What a shame. I mean, I guess everything yeah. runs its course, but but you know, my mother hated me reading Mad magazine. She thought it was awful, and um, <laughs> I thought it was it was my key or my little my little look into the portal of reality. You know that that um, here here someone showing me a glimpse of how things really are. And I would be foolish not to take advantage of it. Amen. Um, when you sh- shifting gears um, a little bit, if you so let, since we're in that space of younger version of you reading Mad Magazine, when you when you think back on um, 
you know, if you could go back and talk to that version of you before you started your long climb to where you are right now, what are some of the things you might tell younger version of you based on what you know now? Um, presuming, of course, that version of you is open to hearing what this version of you has to say. Yeah. Um, I would say the, the key to success is realizing that everybody who seems to have it figured out is suffering from a horrible case of imposter syndrome and you're no worse than they are. And if you understand that they're going through the same stuff you are, um, you know, go ahead and ask that girl out. (laughs) I would have told my high school self, you know, I just, I just felt so, um, not up to that challenge and felt so, Mm. um, beyond worth, uh, you know, that, that like, oh my God, she would never, ever, ever in the world go out with me. And I would be so humiliated for the rest of my life. And I would tell myself to take that chance and, you know, go ahead and ask. Right. Um, because, because uh, like the only people I see that don't have imposter syndrome are the Trump family members right now, you know, (laughs) and, and they're the exact opposite. I don't know what the opposite of, you know, they believe they're actually talented and, and the opposite is true. So people who have imposter syndrome are probably worth it. And people who don't have it probably aren't, at least in my estimation, since we're on the night of the Iowa caucuses and we can get political for a few seconds. For a few seconds. Yeah. That works. Like, that works. like I'm going to be banished from higher education for having a liberal opinion about things, right? Yeah. I think you're probably safe at this point. Yeah. Um, the um well and maybe this is a a flip side of that then too which is um you know if you had moments or a moment that that you recall where you took a risk you took that shot and you failed miserably um but maybe came back with a different perspective yeah it sounds like a job interview question but um you know the frame for this for me and i think i've said it before on the podcast there's a a friend of mine who is uh, now a jesuit but he uh, before he went as he was going through his training he he told me that uh, i needed to put myself in a position to fail spectacularly and that was before i left marquette to come up and actually take the job at lawrence and it was kind of the thing that pushed me over the edge to make that move um and so with all that as a backdrop yeah um so I had been in admissions for, um, I guess, about 10 years and uh, met my future wife at Grinnell while we were there. And Grinnell had this really funky policy that two people who were married couldn't be in the same office. And so um, it wasn't that really, yeah, we weren't supervising each other. We were at the same level, but they had a rule that you couldn't do that, even though they had violated that rule for other people. So they told us, if you get married, one of you has to quit. And um, so they kind of expected that my wife would quit. And I said, well, screw this. Um, I'm going to be the one to quit. And I'm going to take this job at a consulting, quote unquote, consulting company in Atlanta called Communicorp. Yeah. And um, it was, it really, the founder and the leader of the company persuaded me that they were transitioning from a a print publication company into a a marketing company for higher education. And I, and I'd be doing more consulting and I ended up having to sell publications to keep printing presses running. And I just hated it. But while I was there, um, I met someone, his name is Ron Wendelin. 
and he owns, um, he now runs a private consultancy. Um, I thought I shut off my outlook. I'm sorry about that. He runs a private consultancy called uh, Prescience Associates. And he taught me more about strategy and about how to look at the world and how to frame problems and how to um, take what you know and make it valuable than probably anybody else I've ever met in my life. So I failed spectacularly at sales, which anybody who knows me would would instantly Not be surprised. figure that out. Yeah. Well, my, my first <laughs> my first job out of college was selling cable TV door to door in Dubuque, Iowa, which is I'll tell you some stories about that someday. Um, but um, you know, I don't have the salesperson's mentality. If someone said no, I my my inclination is to say, well, I respect you enough to think that you know what you want to need. And a salesman, of course, can't have that mentality, right? Because the salesman says, um, the sale starts when the customer says no. Um, and I'm like, okay, fine, I'll go on to the next one. It wasn't me. But I, I learned so much from him um, that really focused and shaped and tempered the way I viewed the world, uh, or not maybe not the world, but the world of higher education and strategy and the big picture of how you approach everything that... Um, you know, it's, it's never, it's never not on my mind how much I owe him for, for that lesson. And he didn't, he didn't sit me down and try to teach me. I just learned by watching how we approach things and how we yeah. did things that it was, uh, it was invaluable to me. Hmm. So when you, uh, I, I know you are a, an avid photographer, I'm shifting gears. Absolutely no yeah. segue there whatsoever. It's okay. Um, <laughs> the, um, how do you, you know, how do you take care of yourself? I know that's a super fuzzy question, but, um, you know, how do you make sure that you've got enough gas left in the tank? Yeah. Um, well, when I work, I work really hard. And when I relax, I relax really hard. So I'm, I try not to mix the two up too much. I mean, obviously I carry my phone with me and if I get a email, a work email on the weekend, I'll answer it. So that's not an issue, but, um, you know, I know people that really enjoy working all the time just for the sake of working, and that's not me. I, I certainly put enough hours in the office, and and that's not a, a problem for me. So when I relax, I sometimes do absolutely nothing for a long time, and that's good for me. Or I'll go out and do photography and um, spend a couple hours or three hours out um, walking around looking for things to, to photograph. And, um, you know, it's kind of like... I would say photography is kind of like golf. You convince yourself that the next expensive piece of equipment is going to make you good at it. And um, mm. I've, you know, I've come to the the point of equilibrium where I know my stuff is really not that good, but, but it's only for me. I'm not trying to sell it. I'm not trying to be a professional. So um, I feel okay about it. And um, if other people seem to like it, which they do on occasion, um, you know, I'm really glad yeah. to, to provide that and to do it. I, I talked to my neighbor who's also a photographer, my, my neighbor back in Illinois. Um, and I, I said, do you ever share your photography? It's really good. And he goes, Oh, I could never do that. And I said, you know, ju I'm just the opposite. I could never imagine doing photography and not wanting to share it. Um, so, you know, I guess that's why they make chocolate and vanilla, right? <laughs> just, yeah. Well, yeah, and I imagine actually the the camera lens has been an interesting way to experience your new home. 
Um, yeah. I mean, no shortage of wonderful things to shoot out there. And the topography is so different. It is. I'm not a landscape guy. I, I, um, You're a bird guy, I, aren't you? In a... Well, uh, so I do two things. I do birds and um, I do dead plants, which kind of scares people sometimes. But really, um, I started doing that when I was in Illinois on the prairies. And, um, you know, you'll walk along and you'll see one yellow leaf or one orange leaf or one red leaf among the dead the dead plants. It's kind of how it survived. And so I'm always looking for that exception or that thing that's different or that thing that stands out or the hmm. thing that's kind of expressing its own individuality. And so I put, I have a couple websites for photos. One is 500 PX and I put, um, I put my dead plants on there mostly. Um, <laughs> it, it's my, um, it's my, um, motif, I guess you would say there. <laughs> My dead plants. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. And you know, I think, I think, um, the lesson is at least for me, there's a lot of beauty in things that people don't think are beautiful. Hmm. And so I tr try to bring that out and try to highlight that that's the 500 PX. And then on a Flickr site, I kind of do general photography, which includes some of the dead plants, but also includes birds or, um, street people, um, or others. I, I follow some street photographers on um, uh, Instagram and other sorts of places, and I'm always amazed at the shots they can get of people. And interestingly, most of them are women. And th that makes sense to me, because some guys standing there across the street taking your picture, and you're likely to get a little freaked out. Um, hmm. Some woman is doing it, and you're probably more likely to look at that person and smile, or, or at least not get freaked out. And so hmm. um, I think the best street photographers are women um, time and time again. I see it all, all the time. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, street photography or women in the street is a good hashtag to follow on Instagram. Okay. Uh, there are some really great women street photographers who do phenomenal work. Um, cool. Uh, yeah. Thanks for the recommendation. Yeah. Um, we, uh, we, are hit, we are at that point in the interview where um, it seems time for a rapid descent. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the, uh, the ritual of the rapid descent. I've heard of it. Yeah. Email. Someone warned me once. Yeah. So the, it's a series of seven questions looking for seven quick answers. Okay. Um, just whatever's off the top of your head. So yep. I will fire away and just whatever, whatever comes to mind, let us know. Sure. So question number one, what is your walkout song? I would say it's, uh, won't get fooled again by who. Okay. Uh, what's the best thing you've read lately? Um, a Wikipedia article about Norman Borlaug. Oh, yeah. And thanks for that post. <laughs> I'm with you. It's March 25th, right? March 25th, test optional day. All right, yeah. let's do it. Um, what's the thing you're eager to read next? Um, I, I probably want to dive into Paul Tuff's book because I'm apparently yeah. featured in it. And uh, read a little bit about what he wrote. I've read a, a couple chapters of it, but haven't finished it. And we'll, we'll tear into that at some point. Once it's a little farther in the past. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, 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 I could not recommend it more highly. It was our book club book for the leadership team at Lawrence. Oh. And uh, it gives us places to come back to in our conversation. Yeah, great. What is your favorite thing to make in the kitchen? Um. Do you remember Sandra Lee, the woman who did semi-homemade? 
used to I do, do not. Yeah, so she would take like box cake mixes and turn it into homemade stuff, you know. And so my favorite thing is my Hormel chili recipe, where I take Hormel chili, extra sharp cheddar, corn chips, Frank's hot sauce, and um, bacon bits, and mix it all up together and make a really killer home, semi-homemade chili. You sound like um, most college students I know. Yeah, uh, that's a. I'm not a foodie. Pass, foodie is. I will food pass. Is, food is very functional for me. I'm not a food experience person. No, I'm no judging at all. I'm going to pass that recipe along to my uh, son, who's a sophomore in college and could use uh, some breath to his repertoire. Yeah. Um, what do you use to uh, take and keep your notes? I um I don't take notes. Oh, I see. Yeah, I really no. Um, so I never used to take notes in meetings ever, um, because I would never refer to them afterwards anyway. Uh, my theory is I just whatever sticks in my head sticks in my head. Um, once in a while, I'll make a note to myself to remind me to do something. But um, but people got so freaked out by it that I now take a legal pad to every meeting and write stuff down. Just just to pretend like I'm taking notes. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Um, then I won't even bother to ask if you're really careful about the pen that you use when you're taking these pretend notes. You know, I love fountain pens. Um, and okay. I just bought a new one right. because um, my old ones were, the tips were getting a little worn out on them. Do you have a, sp uh, then I'll go there. Is it, do you have a certain fountain pen you, you swear by? Um, I have three different brands now. I have a Mont Blanc, which I don't like at all. Mm -hmm. I think it was overpriced and not very good and uh, doesn't serve me very well. I have a Schaefer, which is beautiful. It's, it was a cheap, like $45 one, but flows terrifically and has. I use that for black ink. And then my new one is an orange for my university, uh, Lamy, uh, with blue ink in it. And that writes like a dream. And that was, again, 60 bucks, so not... You know, I don't, I would never spend $450 on a pen, but uh, a nice $60 pen, I found uh, to be a pretty good uh, investment. And you said that's a Lamy? L-A-M-Y, yeah. Oh, Lamy. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, what's a memorable bit of advice you've received? Um, well, it would, it would be the advice that everybody's an imposter. Everybody has imposter okay. syndrome. Yeah. Best piece yeah. of advice I ever got. And that has been the theme on this podcast, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, and then finally, number seven, name an item on your bucket list that you haven't yet checked off. This is going to sound weird. I do not and have never had a bucket list. Okay. Yeah, that doesn't sound never. weird at all. It's, it's a yeah. presumptuous question that people have. Yeah. I don't have a bucket list either. I just have some things I'd like to do someday, but I haven't actually yeah. written it down. I, I really don't. I have absolutely no expectations for the rest of my life. And I just, you know whatever comes comes. So I'm fine with whatever. Well, that works. Um, well, you, you don't you sound for... very convinced, Ken. <laughs> no, I actually am not surprised by that. Um, okay. that sounds, that sounds, that sounds right to me. Okay. Good <laughs> that enough. sounds right. Um, but that's, uh, that's, that's the end of the show. Um, so thank you for, thank you for making time here on the night of the Iowa caucuses. Um, in fact, by the time we're done here recording, we might actually know what's going on. It's possible. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for it's having possible. me. I appreciate it. 
Well, it's it's been a it's been a real treat. So I will put uh, links to what we talked about in the show notes. But uh, I will also say, may may all your dreams come true, John. At least the good ones. Uh, and for you, dear listener, thanks for listening. Be well and do well. Thanks again to our friends at Initial View for sponsoring this episode. To learn more about Elevator Pitch, you can visit initialview.com/elevatorpitch. 